Well, we're going to try and make a biblical case for a free market society. And first of all, we need to give just a, a brief description of what a free market society is. And there are five, five uh, characteristics to it. First of all, there's economic freedom. The freedom to create, the freedom to sell or to keep, the freedom to set a price. There's economic freedom. Secondly, there's voluntary exchange. If I don't want what you're selling, I don't have to buy it. And if nobody wants what you're selling, then you probably should make something else. Go somewhere else. Buyer and seller are not forced into a deal. Desire for personal improvement uh, is on both sides. We're going to look at that a little bit later as well. Private property rights. The right to own property. The right to use property as the owner sees fit. The motivation to invest, to work, to save, to build capital which is where capitalism comes from. Capitalism actually comes from a Latin word for head, referring to the head of cattle. as the idea that you could own cattle, you could own things of value that could be traded for something else. Profit motive. Profit is another big thing. Allows people to increase wealth through hard work and taking risks. Allows for growth, more supply, lower prices, and so on. If it weren't for a free market society, that allowed wealthy people in the world to buy those big screen TVs at top dollar, you wouldn't be buying those big screen TVs for just a couple hundred bucks. They'd still be top dollar because nobody would have tested them out and tried them when they were rare enough to incentivize someone to produce them on a mass scale and bring the price down. It's only in a free market society that things like that happen. And lastly, competition. This motivates business owners to work hard to be the best. Quality goes up, not down. If you look at the houses that were built in communist, communist Russia during the 1900s, you'll see what I mean about quality and what happens when nobody cares because the value of the house is the value of the house. Whatever it costs to build is what it costs to build. Doesn't matter if it's next to a garbage dump or next to a park, doesn't matter. Cost of the house, the cost of the house, right? There's no incentive to be the best. Uh, motivates business owners uh, to not let co consumers down because if you do, they're going to go next door. They're going to go somewhere else. Drives the prices down and ensures that unpopular products stop production. Don't waste your time. Competition is a good thing. So those are the five marks of a free market society. Uh, and we need to make sure that we understand that biblical does not mean perfect. We're not trying to say tonight that a free market society, as it is right now, is the perfect solution. Yes, there are problems. We can note those. We can see those. We can see how some people have used the free market society for greed, and uh, obviously it's very corrupt. The corruption has gotten into the politics that set the, the rules around a free market society to keep that market society safe, right? So the people calling the shots, the referees in the game are bought and paid for. That's not a great thing. So we're not saying tonight, we're not going to try and claim that biblical means perfect. It never did and it never will. Our goal is not to set up heaven on earth. That's not our goal. That was the problem. That is the problem with communism and socialism. It's, it, it's the fact that they are trying to set up heaven on earth without God. 
We're not trying to do that. Romans 3 is pretty clear that we are all gone astray. There's none righteous, no, not one. Our hearts are wicked. Heaven will not be heaven until Jesus Christ comes back and reigns as king over all. However, our goal is to reflect, this is the key word tonight, by the way, to reflect the kingdom of God on earth. Yes, the kingdom is at hand. Jesus announced that when he came. And we live right now, we live between the now or the already and the not yet. What is yet to come? And uh, we are taught by Christ that we are the salt of the earth. We're not to lose our taste, our saltiness. Otherwise, we're useless. We're the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket and so on. So we need to avoid two extremes here. The first extreme is that the kingdom of God is only in the future. So there are Christians who look at the world this way and say, you know what, we don't need to worry about Christ being king over culture today because the kingdom of God is in the future. So if you look at the Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes and so on, that's for a future day, that's not for today. Which I find interesting because if it's for a future day when Christ comes back, why is Jesus saying, blessed are the persecuted? Or those, for my name's sake and so on. Scripture is pretty clear, Matthew 3, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's what Jesus came saying. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. So we must not fall into the extreme that says the kingdom of God is only in the future. We don't need to worry about it now. We don't need to worry about setting up just societies. We don't need to worry about living by biblical principles and so on. The physical world doesn't matter at all. All that matters is spiritual and preach the gospel and see souls saved and that's it. We don't need to learn about economics because after all, we're just about the gospel. That's one extreme we need to avoid. The second extreme is that the kingdom of God is already fully here. It's not fully here. That it's up to us to set Jesus' kingdom up now on our own efforts rather than on the physical return of Christ. If that were true, it would have been accomplished by now. But it's not going to be fully accomplished until Jesus comes back. There's a future characteristic to the full consummation of the kingdom that cannot be achieved without the return of Christ as king. And so Jesus, in Luke 17, kind of alludes to both. The kingdom of God uh, is sometime in the future. He says in response to that, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that you can be that can be observed. Nor will they say, "Look here, it is, here it is, or there." For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. In other words, look around; you're missing it. But he said to the disciples, "The days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. And they will say to you, "Look there, or look here. Do not go out or follow them, for as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. That's a future day. So again, J. Richards says, wherever believers are obeying God's commands in the world, there should be some glimmer of his kingdom. That includes our economic 
and political life. There are examples of imperfect obedience to biblical patterns. So when we say biblical, we don't mean perfect, such as the church. This is not a perfect church. We try to be a biblical church, but even a biblical church has to leave room for discipline, for how to respond to sin. Why? Because being biblical doesn't guarantee perfect. God's chosen witnesses. Look who he's chosen. He chose me. He chose you. And I know something about me, that every day I struggle with sin. I struggle with temptation. It's there all the time, yet God chose me. And it's biblical for me to be willing to be used by God as his servant, even though it's not going to be perfect service. It's going to be marked by failure. Biblical doesn't mean perfect. Okay, so here are some principles that can guide us in uh, talking about the free market from the Bible. Here's the first one. We were created to create. Genesis 1 is pretty clear. God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Subdue it. How do we do that? Taking the raw, this is exciting. Taking the raw materials of this earth and subduing them, making them into items of value, items of use, things that we can use to create more efficiency, to benefit mankind. It's pretty incredible when you think of what God has allowed us and commissioned us as his creation to be, as in imperfect yet co-creators with him. Not creating things out of nothing as he has done, but creating things out of what he has done, what he has made, creating something out of something. Secondly, personal abilities are encouraged. In other words, central planning, which says you go here, you do that, and so on. In a free market society, people can take a look at themselves, and just like Psalm 139, they can say, Lord, you formed me, my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. Okay, so there are two things that come up in the free market that we need to talk about. The first is competitive advantage. What is competitive advantage? Well, competitive advantage says you might not be the best at something, but you're better at something than you are at everything else. That's what competitive advantage says. So basically what you need to do is look at your interests, look at what you're good at, what people have affirmed for you. And this is in the New Testament. We see this when we're talking about assessing our spiritual gifts and so on. It's very much set up in the same type of model and while I might not be the best at, um, let's say, teaching, or I might not be the best in controls, I might be better at that than I am at something else I might do. So what I need to do is look for what I would be better at and go into that, and especially something that I would enjoy doing, right? Because if you enjoy doing it, you're never going to go to work for a day in your life. You're going to enjoy what you do. Competitive advantage. But secondly, specialization. So rather than growing our own crops and 
you know, having everything we need. I don't need to go to the grocery store. I don't need to buy meat at the meat store. I don't need to go get my car fixed. I'm going to make it all myself. Well, that's going to make you a very busy individual, and you're probably going to burn out or become depressed because you can't do all of those things. So what do we do? We specialize in one area that we're good at, and we learn how to trade that or make that something valuable that other people might want. So it might be making a good of some kind, or it might be providing a service of some kind, and that's called specialization. So personal abilities are encouraged in the free market society, and that's a wonderful thing. It's a God-given thing, and the Bible encourages that. Thirdly, self-interest and selfishness are distinct. Okay, these are two different things, and we need to think this through. One of the claims that is made to a capitalist or free market society is the claim that, well, it's just built around selfishness, that everyone is motivated just by selfishness. We're only doing what we're doing for greed, to get as rich and as wealthy as we can. Okay. But there is no other model of society in a broken world, again, in a broken world, that forces even a selfish person to have to benefit someone else, to benefit someone else in the aim of their own self-interest. Something else we need to understand, self-interest is not necessarily bad. It's actually something that is God-given to all of us. We are all, and we can't stop being, we are all more interested in ourselves than anyone else in this room. And there is such a thing as self-love. Jesus actually said, basically, here's the measuring stick for how you should love your neighbor. How is it? Love your neighbor as yourself. That's the measuring stick. The assumption, again, that, that somehow self-interest in itself is wrong. No, the Bible turns around and says, use it for good. Here's another one to husbands in Ephesians 5. In the same way, Paul t- teaches husbands, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh. Notice that? No one ever hated his own flesh. Even people who say, I hate myself, and they're self-loathing and so on, and want to hurt themselves, why are they doing that? Because they're focused on self. We can't help but be focused on self. It's part of our conscience. It's part of our psyche. And so Paul tells husbands to love your wives as your own body. There it is, the measuring stick again. I'm going to treat my body properly and carefully. And I need to look at my wife in the very same way and cherish her. Again, Philippians 2, verse 4, Paul teaches the the Philippian church, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. John Piper made a whole ministry out of this idea, what he called Christian hedonism. And what is it? It is the fact that you're not to live or pursue a holy life merely to grovel in pain and in darkness and so on, but his his point is that the Bible teaches God is a benevolent God, he's a good God, he's a happy God, and he wants you to be ultimately happy, happier than anything else could make you. And the only way you will be ultimately happy is by himself. 
So he wants you to pursue him above everything else because he is what will make you ultimately happy above everything else. So God is most glorified when we are most satisfied in him. That's a John Piper statement, and it is based on this idea of self-interest. I live for Christ because Christ makes me happy above everything else. And we go through trials. The trials are worth it because they bring us closer to Christ. And that makes me happy. We, we accept persecution and we stand for truth in the gospel because there's ultimately something else that's worth it. And so in the free market society, again, Adam Smith, I'm just going to quote him for a minute. He said, it's not the benevolence of the butcher, the brewer, or the baker that we expect our dinner, but from their regard to their own interest. We have food on the table at home because regardless of whether these people are business owners are selfless or selfish, doesn't matter. They are forced to benefit you as a result of a free market society. All right, number four, rewards encourage innovation to solve known problems. Rewards, this, again, this kind of goes into the self-interest idea, but the New Testament is filled with promises of reward for faithful stewardship and living. This leads from self-interest. Matthew 25 is the parable of uh, the man who he gave uh, the talents to three individuals and uh, he went away. And those three individuals took those talents. One had five, one had two, and one had one. And each of them did something with those talents. The one that had five, well, he gained five more as a result of investments and so on. And his master said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Nobody, the, the New Testament is not telling us, live for God, surrender your life to Christ, abstain from sex until your marriage, and on and on and on with self-control and so on. It's, we're not just saying that because it's just the right thing to do, so go do it. The Bible doesn't do that. The Bible says that as a result of following and obeying Christ, there is a reward waiting for you that you can't begin to imagine. The Apostle Paul talks about it in Romans 8. He talks about why he was willing to suffer. And again, in 2 Corinthians, I think it's 2 Corinthians 4, right at the end, he talks about this eternal weight of glory that makes just this temporary suffering just nothing. It's meaningless compared to what's waiting for me. He was talking about a crown of righteousness that was waiting for, for him as he faced his execution. Reward is a biblical principle, and reward is in the free market society. You get rewards for innovating. You know, making you know, something where you can do computer functions in the palm of someone's hand. Well, that's, that's pretty enticing. That's pretty motivating. You imagine the amount of pieces that go into something like this? And then someone comes along and says, you know, I need a tool, a software that I can just whip out my phone and, and do this particular function. And I haven't found anyone to do it for me. Well, maybe I'll learn how to do it myself. I've heard of guys that do this. 
that where I was working just previous to this, there was a guy that was working with us and uh, he was basically, all, all he was doing was just producing software and creating new functions to help the company run smoother and smoother and smoother. And there's no end to it. It would have just kept going and going and going. But there's rewards. There's rewards at the end. What's the next one? Private property encourages stewardship. Private property encourages stewardship. It's one thing if you rent a home, but I don't think if you're renting a home, you're going to do too many renovations to that home because you're not going to get anything back from it. No value at all, except for the time you're living there. It might be nice, uh, but you're not going to get anything back from it. But my wife and I have had three homes now. We've renovated all three of them, and we're still in the process of renovating the one we have right now. And there's something uh, rewarding about it, just recognizing that this is our piece of land, God's given to us, and we get to make whatever we want out of it as far as value is concerned, to increase the value, and whatever we put in, the hours, the material, and so on, we're going to get it back. At some point, it's an investment. So 1 Timothy 6, 17, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, Paul says to Timothy, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are, they are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as, good, as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. In other words, he was telling Timothy, teach these people who have all of this property, all of this capital, teach them to use it responsibly, not merely to own it, but to steward it. Because through stewarding it, he promised reward. Thus, they are storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future. And that future, by the way, lasts forever. It's eternity. Private property encourages stewardship. More on stewardship in a little bit. Here's the next one. Wealth was intended to grow. Compound interest, I think Einstein said, is one of the wonders of the universe or something like that. But uh, at one point, the Christian church did not know what to think about uh, the idea of compound interest. Uh, they thought because of Exodus 22, where God said, if you lend money to any of my people with you who is poor, you shall not be like a money lender to him and you shall not exact interest from him. And uh, so exacting interest was seen to be something that was greedy, um, covetous and so on, and it was sin. But all of that began to change as historically, the context changed. You see, people used to trade within their extended families in Exodus and so on. Majority of people were poor at that time and money was seen to be sterile. So a, a gold coin was a gold coin was a gold coin was a gold coin and so on. So someone came along and they were desperate and they said, listen, I just, I need, you know, so much to, to just get my family through and feed my family to charge them interest on that was obviously pathetic and evil. But let's look at the reason for money and what has happened to money over in history. This is interesting. I didn't bring any money with me up here. Um, I thought about it, but maybe it's a good thing. Yeah, maybe I don't have any. Maybe that's the problem. I should check. But here's why we have money, okay? So a little history on money. So let's say I breed chickens and you breed cows, okay? 
And we decide in our society that a cow is worth, let's say, 200 chickens. Okay? Now, I want to trade my chickens, but I don't need a whole cow. Well, we got a problem. Or let's say you want two of my chickens. What are you going to give me? A hoof? Like, what, what am I going to get for that? It's not going to work well, is it? Or let's just say, even to make matters a little more complicated, what happens if you don't want chickens, you want peacocks? But I want some roast beef. Well, I can't trade chickens because you don't want chickens. So now I got to go find someone who has peacocks and trade with them, and that could be a complicated process. I don't know what a peacock would be worth in chickens. Um, and I'd have to get what you want and then bring it to you. Could you imagine now if you compound this by thousands, like how many things out there that people are specialized in that we'd have to trade for, and you want this and I want that, and it would be absolute chaos. So we have money, and money is something that has three characteristics to it in order to be money. First of all, it has a unit of account. It has to be something measurable. So like a gold coin or some kind of metal that's the same size, the same what we can weigh it. It's the same every single time. It's precise. That's why we can put them in slot machines, pop, pop machines and stuff like that. Or, uh, we can use it, a unit of account. Not only that, it's got to be a means of exchange. It's got to be something that I don't have to lug around in a dump truck. And it's got to have some store value. In other words, it can't just shrivel up over time. So I can't just store a bunch of heads of lettuce in my house expecting that I'm going to be able to use these all year long. Over time, they're going to shrivel up. I'm not going to have heads of lettuce very long. So that's probably not a good source for money. Um, but gold is, silver and so on. That's why metals, precious metals, have always been good sources of money. And by the way, they're really immune to inflation in the sense that a gold coin is a gold coin is a gold coin. And a gold coin a thousand years ago is a gold coin today. Like it's, it, gold is gold. But here's what happened. Banks come in at some point because people don't want to be carrying big treasure chests of gold around everywhere they go. It's really hard. It's really rough. You got to have a pretty big vehicle for that, pretty big Humvee to be carrying your gold treasure chest around. Makes it hard to go to the grocery store and you're, you know, putting the treasure chest down on the cash register and opening it up. And how many did you say you needed? Right? It's bad enough as it is. Uh, so we have banks. And what the bank said was, well, we'll store your gold for you. And in, in, uh, in exchange, we're going to give you a bank note, a bank reserve note, and uh, that's where we get the dollar bill from. Um, dollars are merely banknotes. That's all they are. They're documents to say this is how much money that you have. It's a reflection of what is in the bank. But over time, what happened was uh, they were handing out these notes and so on, but banks were storing all this money, and people were coming to them as business owners and saying, you know, we want to start an enterprise, but we don't have the money for it. Let's say, you know, you front us the money for it, and in, you've taken the risk as the bank. You've taken the risk, so we're going to pay you back some interest for that. Fair, right? The bank has taken some risk. Now interest is a great thing. And as banking grew... Uh, business owners obviously are borrowing and borrowing and so on. And before long, you've got more banknotes out in circulation than you actually have gold in the bank. 
which was called fractional reserve banking at the time. What we have today is just the, it, it's evolved from there where now they don't even have gold in the bank anymore. They don't care about it. They haven't cared about it in probably, I don't know, half a century now, at least 60, 70 years or something. But at some point they decided to do away with the gold standard and now we just have fiat money. So the banknote is all you have now. And the only reason that banknote, which is reproducible, you can just make more if you need them, the only reason that banknote has any value at all is because the government says so, and that's what you call a fiat. So it's called fiat money. It's a fiat money system, which is why you have inflation today, because, hey, if we're short on cash as a country, we just make more. But as you make more, the supply goes up, the demand goes down, your money loses its value over time. And uh, that's where we're at. But money itself was not intended to be sterile. It was meant to be fertile, to grow, like the banking. And as we take risks, our money is supposed to grow. Again, Matthew 25, the story of the five talents and so on. The man who had the five talents, what did he do? He who had received the five talents, Jesus said, he went at once and he traded with them and he made five talents more. Don't know exactly how he did it. I don't think they had a stock exchange back then, but whatever he did, he was working, buying, selling, taking risks, and before long, he had doubled the value of his money. And those talents would most likely have been talents of silver, which were extremely, extremely valuable and rare at the time. So that was, he made some good coin off of that, which apparently... Uh, you can do with crypto today, but I'm not a crypto guy yet. I'm mildly interested in it. Some of you are majorly interested in it. I hear about it all the time, very educated, uh, because uh, Blake Hill's in the office next to me. So I, I hear about it a lot, um, and it is interesting to me. But it sounds like, again, money is growing. It sounds fertile. Um, it's gaining value and so on. But wealth was intended to grow. There's nothing wrong with that. There's everything right with that. That's a, a great thing. And uh, by the way, just to say in response to that, so what happened, uh, Luther and Calvin and the Protestant Restoration, uh, Re Reformation, pardon me, came along and it changed everything as they saw, you know, money's changing, banking's changing, all of this is changing. And before long, the ultimate outcome of all of this, money becoming fertile, was the idea that money is no longer a necessary evil, but it can actually be used for the glory of God. What did that mean? Follow me here. Businessmen were now, this was new. Businessmen were now just as called as ministers of the gospel. This actually came out of Calvinist doctrine, but it made the Calvinists passionate about business as a means of advancing the kingdom of God. They looked at business as a vocational ministry, just like being a pastor of a church. It's a very interesting change, and we're going to notice why in a, in a few minutes. Principle number seven, freedom is a priority to God. It's almost an obvious, but Jesus who said, uh, if the sun sets you free, you will be free indeed. I think the night we were looking at the sexual revolution, we talked a lot about freedom, so I'm not going to speak more about it tonight, other than to say that the gospel proclaims true freedom and a free market is the natural outflow of that freedom. It forces people to not bite and devour everyone around them. 
in the selfish model of freedom that Paul referred to in Galatians 5, it forces people to actually benefit each other if they want to make any kind of profit. One other interesting note about the free market, it actually drove the abolition of slavery because it was this idea of freedom and self-interest in society that drove Abraham Lincoln's quest, his thinking for freeing the slaves. Why? Because he believed a man should be entitled to the fruit of his own labors. So he watched slaves working and working and working and never ever enjoying the fruit of their own labors. And Abraham Lincoln said, this is not biblical. This is not, this is evil. And it drove, in fact, the abolitionists in the UK, they actually looked up to Adam Smith and it drove their uh, interest as well in abolishing slavery. All right, I wanna take a brief uh, few minutes to look at work. Um, Productive work is God's desire and the theology of work. I just wanna make sure that we understand this, that just as we were just saying, um, the changes that happened throughout church history and how Calvin and those that came after him started to see money as more than a necessary evil and business as being a calling from God, This came into the theology of work that comes straight out of scripture as well. Work in the ancient world was degrading. There were many pagan writers who attacked the Christian church through their writing. One of those writers was Celsus, who uh, we know much about his writing because Origen, one of the church fathers, early church fathers took the time to thoroughly refute his attacks. And of all the things Celsus didn't like about the Christians, the greatest source of his issue was that they were considered lower class in Roman society, and yet they professed to be teachers and thinkers and intellectuals. Because the elite in Roman society, for the elite in Roman society, work was beneath them. They did not produce with their hands. That was for the slaves. That wasn't for the elite. If you were smart and rich, you didn't work with your hands. Instead, the social elites, what did they fill their time with? Pleasure. That's why there was so much debauchery, dinner parties, drinking, orgies, adulterous affairs, betrayals. Life was somewhat meaningless, and it was the only way to kind of numb you from that. Meanwhile, the slaves had almost no rights, so the actual working productive people in society had almost no rights, such as, first of all, they could be bought and used for sexual gratification as sex slaves and nothing more, and they were not ever to complain about it. The testimony of a slave could be used in court only if the slave was tortured first. Slaves on larger farms died from ill treatment. Mega farms, let's call them mega farms because it was cheaper to buy new ones than to take care of the existing ones. And when people were done with their slaves, their slaves got old or sick. Quite often the slave owners would just, you're out on the street or kill them. Didn't matter which way they did it. I mean, that that part aside, just watching the Roman elites kind of reminds me of an episode of Downton Abbey, right? Where you have the aristocrats upstairs and the dinner parties causing all kinds of trouble and kind of getting entangled in all these different weird situations because they have nothing better to do but sit around and drink tea all day 
And meanwhile, you have the servants down in the basement who are doing all the hard work and keep the whole thing going day after day after day after day. You also see this in the Titanic when the Titanic went down and there was, it, it became a very big issue that was highlighted that the poor, the third class, were down, locked at the bottom of that ship as it was going down, and they were not allowed to come up. And it was the wealthy that were given first place on the lifeboats before second and third class, and so on. You had these class systems that were going on. Work was degrading. It was for the lower class. Actually, I think Marx would agree with this. All honest work is glorifying to God, though. It reflects the productivity of the creator. God made. In fact, it says that God fashioned, he formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. It gives the idea of God forming. The, word, the Hebrew word for form is the idea of a potter who's fashioning his clay with his fingers. We are the product of God's handiwork. It's pretty incredible. It reflects the original purpose for us before the fall. Genesis 2.15, the Lord God took the man, put him into the garden of Eden. What To do what? To work it and keep it. That is before the fall. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, you shall surely eat of every tree of the garden. There it is. Work it and enjoy the fruits of your labor. But the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So even though man was free to eat of the fruit of his labors, which is a source of happiness, because man was already placed in the garden to work, which was a source of happiness, yet man was still to trust God for what he didn't know, which is also a source of happiness. Not only that, it's glorifying to God because it reflects the servant character of Jesus who washed the disciples' feet, took the form of a slave, and in so doing actually depicted what he was about to do at the cross in serving us, his people, in dying for our sins. And all Christians are ministers in their vocations. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 10, whether you, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. So I don't know what you do for your daily job, but let me be clear, your vocation is your calling and treating it as such changes everything. It changes your perspective. There's a couple examples of businessmen Christian businessmen who have lived this out. S. Truett Cathy, I have to mention him because Chick-fil-A just came to Windsor. Hmm? That's right. And uh, of course, it started as a small restaurant. In fact, he, he initially called the restaurant the Dwarf Grill in, uh, just outside of Atlanta. Uh, and he turned it into a billion-dollar empire. Started in Atlanta in 1946 with his brother Ben. His brother Ben was killed in a plane accident, a plane crash. Uh, noticed people, he noticed people taking rolls when he was selling uh, food at a stand by a factory. He noticed people were taking rolls and making a sandwich out of the chicken meat that he was serving. And that's really what started the whole Chick-fil-A idea of a chicken sandwich. 
And uh, then he also noticed that uh, shopping malls were going up in the suburbs in Atlanta in 1967. And so he started just opening up these little places in the food courts and shopping malls. That's how it began. And now we have the standalone restaurants as we see here in Windsor. Um, at one point, he wrote a book with Ken Blanchard, sums up his perspective very well. The title of it is called Generosity Factor, Discover the Joy of Giving Your Time, Talent, and Treasure. What was S. Truett Cathy all about? He was all about stewardship. This was a calling to him. His vocation was his calling, and he made it so. He wanted to glorify God through his business. The other example is David Green. He started making miniature frames in his garage, borrowed $600 to start a little store. I think it was like a 600 square foot store or something like that. Called, anyone know? Hobby Lobby, heard of that, right? Which has over 500 stores today in 41 states, open in about 30 to 35 stores per year. But in 1985, David Green hit very hard times. In fact, they were so hard that he said the bank was threatening liquidation, power companies threatened to shut the lights off. They were paying, they were paying bills out of the cash registers and every phone call was a past due invoice. And David Green says to this day, it was about his personal pride. God was breaking him and Green was humbled and he would spend his days praying under his desk every single day. 1985, he said it was the longest year of his life. To this day, David Green does not stay at the office longer, later than 5.30 at night. He tells his people, if you're there more than, I think it's like 50 hours a week, you're working too much, you're not delegating enough. He's a family man. He put his family first, put his marriage first. He's rarely... Uh, there. Both of these companies, by the way, uh, have something in common, Hobby Lobby and Chick-fil-A. Guess what it is? They're both closed on Sundays, right? Why? Well, Kathy uh, used to actually, it's an interesting story. It started because they, he started his store on a Tuesday and by Sunday he was tired out. And he also realized that most of his customers in the South wanted to worship on Sundays. And so he closed the store down to make sure his employees and customers could worship. Have you ever been, we've, been there, we've pulled into Chick-fil-A on Sundays a few times before we realized, oh yeah, it's Sunday. Uh, he was a Sunday school teacher for 50 years. He spent his Sundays teaching Sunday school. He's a big business tycoon teaching Sunday school on Sundays for 50 years because he was glorifying God with his life. He didn't minimize anything that God gave him to do. Green spoke about, again, putting, I remember reading the sign on the Hobby Lobby front door once about to allow our employees to worship, our store is closed for Sunday, and so on. Both of these men are examples of what it looks like to follow business as a spiritual vocation. Finally, productive work is a witness to the culture as I think those two men are glimpses of, they're examples of. How so? Because we worship a God who visits us in the form of a servant. That's exactly what the early church in pagan, uh, the pagan Roman Empire, that's how they caught 
the attention of the pagan world. How they worked reflected the God they worshipped. That was a big deal. Jesus said, even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Paul describes him who emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. He was born into a poor family, not royalty. He wasn't born into an elite family. He was born in Nazareth. Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? As Nathaniel said, he grew up training as a builder. He called fishermen, tax collectors, shepherds to himself, not the elite, not the smartest and the wisest. He washed his disciples' feet. Secondly, we see it was a witness to the, to the world because slave and master were equal in status within the church. In fact, slaves could be more powerful than their master in the church. Um, and so uh, Galatians 3.28, there is neither, this is a verse that's often used as a proof text for egalitarianism where the roles of men and women can be exchanged and interchanged and so on, but it's not put in its cultural context. There is Neither Jew nor Greek, Paul says, there is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. It's not a proof text for egalitarianism. It has everything to do with the unalienable rights of individuals that they did not have in the society Paul was writing into. And nor will we if we leave the free market society behind. As well as that, productive work is a witness to the culture because, well, rich and poor are also treated equal within the church. As James said, listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? Treated as equals in the church, rich and poor. It doesn't matter your social status. doesn't matter how much money or what car you drive to come here. We've seen some pretty nice cars in that parking lot when I'm standing out there in security. It's pretty cool. I like cars. My kids love cars. My boys love cars. Um, pretty neat. But guess what? doesn't matter. You walk in this door, doesn't matter what you drove. You can drive an old beat-up Honda Civic like I do. Okay, so... Uh, the leading men of the church worked with their hands. So Paul was a tent maker. And along with him, some of his closest partners in crime, Prisca and Aquila, were also tent makers. And they moved around. They followed their vocation. You know, Paul wasn't at some point saying, I'm above that. I'm in ministry now. I don't need to work with my hands anymore. But he would actually go into cities and he would actually make a living off of what he specialized in, right? He was specializing in tent making. He'd make something of value and he would actually fund his ministry efforts through that. And he often told the church, uh, you know, I didn't ask for anything from you. In fact, in 2 Thessalonians, he told the Thessalonians, for you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor, we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. Okay, so we are moving into the final section, living responsible. How do we live? This is the so what section. What does any of this mean for us? We live in a broken economy, that's pretty clear. We see it. Some of you are facing 
job losses, unemployment right now for one reason or the other? Uh, How do we live responsibly? The key word that we're going to notice through all of these is the idea of reflection. And as I said earlier, I'm going to say it again. We reflect what we value with our choices. We reflect what we value with our choices. We reflect our choices with our use of money. What we do with our money reflects what our hearts value. So how do responsible economic decisions reflect the gospel? Is it possible to live out the gospel in daily choices based on our values? A word that keeps coming up in this study. We're like mirrors everywhere we go, not just what we say. Don't want to minimize that. We need to say, we need to speak. People ask us, why do you live that way? Why do you drive that kind of a car? Why, why, you, you could have so much more. Why, why don't you have more? What's going on? Why do you feed all those people? They have questions, and when they have questions, we need to have words to say. We need to be ready with an answer, Peter taught pretty clearly. But we need to reflect it with our lives. And the first one is that delayed gratification reflects contentment. As Philippians 4 teaches, again, I think this might be the most misquoted verse in all of the New Testament by the evangelical church today. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. It has nothing to do with just go out and be the best that you can be and you can do whatever you want because Christ is going to strengthen you to do it. That's not what it means at all. In the context, it means I can do all circumstances through Christ who strengthens me. And Paul says, I have learned to be content I've learned how to live without, and I've learned how to live with too much. In either case, I've learned how to be content. You know, I might come up sometime in conversation with people who believe that capitalism is evil due to greed. You may have the opportunity to point out to them their own propensity toward greed because it's in all of our hearts. I love conversations like that. When people take something that's broken in the world and talk about it and complain about it. And you can say, yeah, you're absolutely right. That is broken. That is broken. But guess where it starts? And guess what it comes from? It comes from right here. Either share your own testimony of how God showed you your own form of greed, whatever it was, and broke you, humbled you, and brought you to Christ and so on. But there are ways to bring this out and provide an explanation why you are content. It's not because you're just a good person. It's not why. It's because Christ has given you everything you need. You don't need any more. Right? There are ways to answer these things. Secondly, purposeful labor reflects the dignity of work. So we've talked about a number of these things. We're just going to kind of tie it all together now. Purposeful labor reflects the dignity of work. And I took Proverbs 31 because the woman in Proverbs 31 and all the way through Proverbs, you can see that wisdom is often being personified as a woman. A wise woman, she has things to say. She's not seductive, but she is to be honored. And at the end of Proverbs, Proverbs 31, we have a woman and she is described in all of her wisdom, living out of her wisdom. I'm going to read some of it. You've got verses on the screen that talk about how her her children and her husband rise up and praise her. And her husband says, many women have done excellently, but you surpass them all. Now I want you to notice what this woman is marked by. Listen to this. In verse 11, the heart of her husband trusts in her, he will have no lack of gain. She does him good and not harm all the days of her life. 
She seeks wool and flax and works with willing hands. She is like the ships of the merchant. She brings her food from afar. She rises while it is yet night and provides food for her household and portions for her maidens. She considers a field and buys it. With the fruit of her hands, she plants a vineyard. She dresses herself with strength and makes her arms strong. She perceives that her merchandise is profitable. Her lamp does not go out all at, at, at night. She puts her hand to the distaff and her hands hold the spindle. She opens her hand to the poor and receives out her hands to the needy. Pardon me, reaches out her hands to the needy. She is not afraid of snow for her household, for all her household are clothed in scarlet. She makes bed coverings for herself. Her clothing is fine linen and purple. You see her purposeful work and how her family lives as a result of it? Do you see the self-interest going on here? As she takes care of her family first, but she also holds out her hand to the poor. She reaches out her hands to the needy. She's active. She's deliberate. But she's working. And her husband is therefore a respected individual in the community. Her children are rising up and calling her blessed and praising her. And her husband is doing the same. The dignity of work. The dignity of putting your hands to something productive and making something of value that makes profit off of it. All of that reflects something of the character of God. Purposeful labor is a reflection of the dignity of work. God is the one that gives it the dignity. Next, competitive advantage we talked about reflects vocational calling. So that idea of doing what you are better at than anything else. It's the same idea in Romans 12. We looked at this on another week about having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. So let us use them. In the church, the application is if it's prophecy in the proportion to our faith, if it's service in our serving and so on, the idea is Whatever your ability is toward and your interests are toward, focus on that, do that, and celebrate the fact that others are not like you and they're doing the things that you can't or are not able to do. When I left ministry about five years ago, almost five years ago, to go back into a secular, I'm going to call it secular, but I hate that term, I don't know what else to call it, into um, the automation world. Again, God taught me a number of things, but out of them, there are two things that I learned that I don't think I realized before. And maybe it was because the setting was a little bit different. But I learned two things about myself. I learned that I love to learn, and I also learned that I love to teach. And I found myself hiring a lot of younger guys who had no experience hiring them based on their integrity, based on their character, and then teaching them from the ground up. And I loved it. I thrived on it, and they did too. Um, And through that experience, uh, I understood something of vocational calling, the idea that it didn't matter. In fact, at some point, while I had understood my calling to ministry years ago, when I was about 24, 25 years old, 
While I understood that, here I am back at work and I resisted it for about one to two years until God, through his grace, was showing me, you know what? This might be my new calling in my life. He may have called me to this now and that is equally as important and I, I learned to lean into it. And at that point, I wasn't sure what was going to happen and where we were going, but I learned an awful lot about that. And I also learned that those young men that were under my care, um, that they were a ministry in themselves. From Monday to Friday or Monday to Saturday, sometimes it was from Sunday to Saturday, depending on how chaotic it was uh, in the industry, they were part of my, a major part of my ministry at the time. It was a vocational calling and God had to teach me that. And it all comes again through learning where your interests lie, what you might be somewhat good at, and leaning into that for the glory of God. And by the way, people recognize it. it this is not for super talented people. This is for Christians. God saves you. He calls you into a particular area of work or labor, whatever that is. And you might be in a transition period right now. But whatever your situation is, God calls us to not just go earn a paycheck, but he calls us to go in with purpose, to be a witness and a light, to be salt and so on. And I'm telling you, people around you in the office, colleagues, they'll start to notice. You know, Maybe your job is to mop floors or cut grass or as a surgeon. It doesn't matter what it is, what your calling is. People around you will look at you and say, you've got a purpose that I don't have. What is it? What's your secret? Tell me about it. It's an open door. Next, opportunity costs reflect values. I don't think I talked about opportunity costs yet, so I'm going to talk about them now. What is an opportunity cost? This is another economic term. An opportunity cost is basically not merely how much money you're going to spend on something, how much something is going to cost you, but it's the idea that when you choose to buy something, let's say I have $10, right? My kids are doing this all the time. They only have so much money in the piggy bank, and they have a choice between two items. If they buy the one, it's going to cost them the opportunity for the other one, right? This happens with just saying yes or no to various opportunities. It doesn't even have to cost money. If I choose to come to your house for dinner, I'm choosing to not go to anybody else's house for dinner at the same time. Can't be two places at once. That's what an opportunity cost is. So when you look at, okay, what house are we going to buy? Whatever house we choose to buy, we're choosing to not buy all the other houses. So those are the opportunities we're giving up for this one. That's an opportunity cost. If I choose to go to med school, the cost of that is going to be going to every other type of school. You're not going to become an airplane pilot or anything like that, a commercial airline pilot, if you're going to med school. That's an opportunity cost. You've got to weigh that up. You're choosing school and so on. And that reflects what you value. Ruth and Orpah in the Old Testament, in the book of Ruth, are a perfect example of this. Two people who have opportunities. Stay with Naomi and go to an unknown land where Yahweh is God, or go back to Moab where it was comfortable and where I knew everybody and I have a better chance of getting married. And both of them had to make a choice. If I do the one, if I choose the one, I give up the other. Orpah decided finally to go back to Moab. Ruth decided she was going, she committed, I'm going and I'm going to die with you in Bethlehem. I'm going where you go. 
That's, that's an opportunity cost. So in Luke 14, just like in Mark 8, where we read at the very beginning of this, Jesus says, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. In other words, if you are not willing to give or to take up a cross, which is an execution tool, which says my life is over, my interests, my own ambitions are over, I'm following Jesus, If I'm not willing to take that up, then the cost of that is going to be giving up Christ and giving up eternity. There's an opportunity cost going on. And he he gave an illustration for which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it. Because if I build this tower, if I commit to this, I'm saying no to everything else and I better have enough to build it, to finish it. It's an opportunity cost. It reflects what we value. When I choose one thing, I'm saying no to everything else. When I married my wife, I said no to every other woman in the world. It's exclusive. It's an opportunity cost. What it does is we navigate through life, it reflects what we value. So if I choose to put my money into something other than a nice car, if I choose to put it into something else, I've made an opportunity cost that might reflect my value what I really value in life. That's challenging. It ought to be challenging. That's the call of discipleship. It's going to cost you. Future reward reflects motivation to serve. Future reward reflects motivation to serve. Here's one, Romans 8. I alluded to this earlier. But Paul says, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. So we're not just suffering because we want to suffer or we're kamikaze pilots. We're suffering because we have a promise of being glorified with him. For I consider, Paul says, that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. In the beginning, Adam gave, or God gave Adam and Eve the fruit of their labors. God has always promised rewards to those who will trust and wait for him. To Abraham, he promised a son, an heir, a nation, and ultimately the Messiah. Because through his children, through his nation, Abraham would bless the world. Abraham had to wait. He had to trust on that future reward that God had promised. Joseph was given dreams that he would be on a seat of authority and he had to endure prison. He had to endure loneliness in a foreign country as a slave. He had to trust in the future reward that God was going to fulfill his promise to him. For Paul, it was a crown of righteousness and so on. Future reward. These are economic terms that drive us. Next, generating profit. Yes, that evil thing called profit that Marx believed uh, should never be. That whatever it costs to make something, that should be the cost to sell it. But profit is a way to measure effectiveness and determine where to use funds more effectively. If we're not making profit, close it down. It's a measuring tool. This is also true for ministries in the church. We need to be very goal-oriented 
outcome-oriented in ministries within a church. If it's not producing fruit over a given period of time, then maybe we need to take the funds and we need to take the manpower and so on and channel it in a different direction into something that might produce fruit more effectively for Christ. And we see that again in Matthew 25 in the parable of the talents. What happened to the man who made no profit? He buried the one talent that he was given. It was taken from him and it was given to the man who had made the five talents extra. Because the master is looking for profit. He's looking for effective service. That which is producing something. This is why when companies uh, declare bankruptcy, it's not always a bad thing. It's an admission. This is not effective. It's not productive. It's not making, it's not profitable. So we take all of those assets and we channel them. We either get someone to come in and revamp things, remanage or whatever it is, or we sell to another company who's going to take it and they're going to distribute those assets into more profitable areas. It's very common, but it reflects effective service. And this is true in Christian life as well. Profits reflect how effective we are. Next, generous stewardship reflects God's goodness. Just like in 2 Corinthians 8, when Paul was trying to tell the Christians in Corinth how generous they need to be, he put it into economic terms, but he used gospel narrative to do so. He said, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, understatement, yet for your sake, he became poor, another understatement, so that you by his poverty might become rich. David Green uh, once said, after that low time of 1985, he said, it's amazing. This is what God taught him, but he said, it's amazing how God has blessed us beyond our comprehension. We see ourselves as stewards, not owners. That's how these guys, this is why these guys were so effective. They were not holding a clenched fist on what they were producing. God had to humble them till they opened their hands and stewarded and managed what God had given to them. David Green of Hobby Lobby saw himself and sees himself as a steward, not an owner. He's stewarding what God has given to him. And as we're generous with what we steward, as we give to others, and as we take those profits and we help others get on their feet and so on and benefit others by giving them jobs, uh, we are reflecting the goodness of God and the compassion of God. Next, uh, beneficial service reflects Jesus' self-giving ministry. Beneficial service, the idea that I'm providing a service that benefits others, which is what, again, the free market encourages, even from selfish people. It reflects the self-giving work of Christ, washing the disciples' feet and his sacrificial death and so on. Jesus said, you call me teacher and Lord, after he had finished washing their feet and asking them if they understood what he had just done. And he said, if I then your Lord and teacher have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. In other words, I'm above you. For you to not do as I've done is for you to try and claim that you are greater than me. You're not greater than me. I'm your Lord. I'm your teacher. I've washed your feet. Therefore, you go and provide beneficial service 
for others around you. Professional integrity reflects the coming kingdom. Professional integrity reflects the coming kingdom. As we operate in a world where there is corruption, where there is greed, our integrity, our honesty, that our word is our word, our word is our bond, it reflects the fact that Jesus Christ is coming back to set the world right. He is going to judge the world. The judge of all the earth is going to do what's right. And so Christ said in Matthew 5 in the Sermon on the Mount, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Peter said something very similar in his first epistle. Well, I want to end this tonight with just a, a, a short note at the what if. What if things go really bad? What if Klaus Schwab gets his way? What if we own nothing and we're not as happy as he thought we'd be? There's a lot of panic. There's a lot of anxiety. Some of you have faced hardships already this year. Gas prices are rising. The supply chain seems to be broken. 2030 is coming, and apparently that's when this new plan is going to be in place, whether you want to believe it or not. What if the worst happens? Let's just go there. What if the very worst happens? We all lose our private property. Gets dark. Revelation 6 uh, gives the narrative as, as the lamb is opening the scrolls the seals on the scroll, and as he's opening each one, there's another episode of history that's coming out of these seals. And the first four, uh, I believe it's the first four, the, what we know as the four horsemen of the apocalypse, um, which were really signs, or they were ways of symbol, symbolizing the, the progressive loss of control of the world despite our best human efforts. The third one, Horse number three is a black horse. And John writes, and he opened the third seal. I heard the third living creature say, come. And I looked and behold, a black horse and its rider had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures say, a quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius and do not harm the oil and wine. What's going on here? Well, the red horse that had just come out just before this one was war and violence that had broken out. And as a result, of course, economic chaos and famine are sure to follow. A denarius was a day's wages in that time period. And a quart of wheat was a daily ration for a soldier, one soldier, a quart of wheat. So what did he say? A quart of wheat for a denarius. So that's the idea that it, you would work for a day that would provide food for one person. So how are you going to provide food for a family? Good luck. The economy's upside down. There are some lessons we can learn from this apocalyptic narrative. One of them is that God has promised to provide for his children. We are told as 
Matthew 6 tells us very clearly, it's up on the screen, therefore do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. I want to explain that just a little bit more in a moment, but that entire section of Matthew 6 teaches this. God will provide for his children. It's an absolute promise. He tells us to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these other things will be added to you. The flowers of the field, they're clothed. The birds of the air, they're fed. How much more we, who are his children, will we not be given food and clothing? Another lesson to learn is that God will use hard times for his glory, which is exactly what he was doing in this apocalyptic narrative, using this to bring the whole earth to its knees before the King of kings and Lord of lords, and yet they still did not repent. But he's working in the darkness We need to remember that and endure and persevere. He's working. He's in control. He's not out of control. He's not out of control tonight, wherever you are in your circumstances. By the way, anxiety is still sin. The kind of anxiety that is just worried about self all the time. If Jesus says, do not be anxious, that's a command. When we are anxious, we are disobeying God's command. Disobeying God's command is a form of sin. That's actually good news because it turns us from victims just perpetually anxious to people that can repent of that and move forward with victory. There's actually victory over anxiety. That's actually good news. And God will meet you in your darkest moment. Corey Tenboom, who uh, lived through the Holocaust and went to um, the German uh, prison camps during the Holocaust, she survived. Her sister did not. Her father did not. They had hidden Jews at one point and were hauled off to the prison camps. But when she was just a little girl, she recounts a night in which she was confronted with death and she was very afraid. And she cried out to her father at bedtime with her fear of death, and this was his reply. This comes right out of the book, The Hiding Place. Father sat down on the edge of the narrow bed. Corey, he began gently, when you and I go to Amsterdam, when do I give you your ticket? I sniffed a few times considering this. Why, just before we get on the train... Exactly. And our wise Father in heaven knows when we are going to need things too. Don't run out ahead of him, Corey. When the time comes that some of us will have to die, you will look into your heart and find the strength you need just in time. Her experience in that statement sums up Matthew 6.34. Tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Don't be anxious about tomorrow. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. We got enough trouble today. God knows what's coming tomorrow. That doesn't mean we don't make plans. Doesn't mean we don't make goals. Not at all. But when it comes to anxiety that paralyzes us, that overwhelms us and we don't know where to go and we're lost in it all and it's just a fog. No, God gives us the strength that we need just in time. So let's remember that as we live in an uncertain and a very broken economy and we don't know what the future is. God is with us. 
He has promised to provide for his children and he will meet us in our darkest moment. 